if you're like most people, you probably spent some time this morning looking at yourself in the mirror because you know that regardless of what you think you might look like, you never really know for sure until you look in a mirror. And I think that's kind of the idea that the biblical author James had in mind when he said that God's word acts like a mirror. Because you think you know how you're doing with anger or with lust or commitments or honesty until you look at yourself in the mirror. This morning, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus might have to say to each of us regarding our rage, our revenge, and our relationships, if we're willing to look in the mirror. Don't mind me. She need to take a moment here. It's been a busy morning, you know, sometimes your hair gets out of place and make sure that I'm all tucked in. If you had to guess, how much time have you spent in front of one of these in the last week? Any, any ballpark numbers? You know I've got stats. Ladies, 43 and a half minutes a day. 43 and a half minutes a day are spent in front of a mirror. And I can see some of the guys like kind of snickering in themselves. No, no, no. Fellas, 56 minutes a day. 56 minutes a day, we spend in front of the mirror. Six and a half hours a week. That means that 14 days, two weeks out of every year, we spend looking at our reflection. I'm not pointing fingers, I promise. Because I am totally in that crowd. Like, I'm with Brishan. If there's a mirror around, I'm probably going to be looking at it. And it's, like, I hope I'm not, you know, too worried about myself. It's just that it's kind of interesting to watch yourself, isn't it? You know, like, I wonder what I look like when I walk. Oh, I need to puff my chest out a little bit more. Ugh. I wonder what I look like when I eat. I don't even know how my girlfriend, like, eats with me sometimes. It's so gross. I just, and it, it's hard not to look at yourself in the mirror because they're not just in our bathrooms or our bedrooms anymore. They're all throughout the house because interior designers say that it creates openness and feng shui, right? So we put mirrors everywhere which may not be such a bad thing because it still amazes me how quickly something can pop up on my face. I'm 23 years old and I still have stuff popping up every couple of hours. It just comes out of nowhere. And if I ever go two or three days without looking in the mirror, I mean, it is, what is that? Oh my, oh my word, where did that come from? Right? I guess no one else here has had that experience. Well, I mean, it's not like mirrors are a new thing either. Mirrors have been around for, for thousands of years. And they haven't just been used to look at your physical appearance. In classical times, people often thought that mirrors could expose things about your morality as well. So authors, philosophers, ethicists, they've always talked about mirrors in relation to self-reflection. So in the same way that a mirror helps you spot skin spots, they expose deeper blemishes hidden habits. They help you spot those spots, too. Which means I, I'm, I want to ask you, like, when, when was the last time that you really looked in the mirror? Because those kinds of moral mirrors, that's what the biblical author James had in mind whenever he talks about mirrors. He talks about it in James 1. We read it earlier. Don't just listen to God's Word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. 
For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away, you forget what you look like, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Apparently, in James's mind, God's word acts like a moral mirror. You know, it exposes those, those heart-deep stains and gives you a real glimpse of what your true character looks like. So those spots and splotches that have just kind of popped up and maybe have been forming for, for weeks or months or, or even years without you knowing that they were there, and when you do finally see them, you're like, where, where did that come from? When did I start acting that way? God's Word reveals those. And in God's Word, we also get a glimpse of, of seeing ourselves the way that God wants us to see ourselves. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds up this mirror and lets you see that your face actually pales in comparison to the blazing complexion that God has in mind for you. But that's where the the beauty begins, too. Because once you see yourself clearly, then you can be transformed. And we can all become the people that God wants us to be. Because God's word reveals the parts of our hearts that require repairs. But here's the thing. It's not always easy to use God's word as a mirror. John Foreman is a singer, songwriter, sung with Switchfoot. He wrote a song a few years ago called A Mirror is Harder to Hold. And the song is really just about how John doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't want to have to face up to himself and look himself in the eye and wonder if he needs to change things about his life. And so he sings, please don't go. Please don't leave me alone. A mirror is so much harder to hold. I think he's right. I think especially when we come to places in the Bible that would really expose some pretty ugly spiritual spots. Like our text this morning, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us that we need to honestly analyze our rationalizations and justifications, our presumptions and presuppositions about rage and revenge and relationships, about keeping our word and keeping our commitments. And he says, you have to look in the mirror. But it's much easier to stand at a distance and to poke and prod at God's word than it is to really stand in the middle of it and let it stare you straight in the face. A mirror is so much harder to hold. I gotta tell you that there are some sermons that I preach that just like seem to be directed right at me. That seem to hit me straight in the face. And I'm sure Chris and Eric would tell you the same thing, that there are some words that God puts on our hearts that we would rather not bring because they seem to be aimed right between our eyes. And this is one of those sermons for me because when I think about the amount of anger that I harbor or the grudges that I hold on to, It is not easy to look in the mirror. 
I don't know if you know, but I spend most of my days reading about God's Word, whether it's for school or it's for ministry. But I really had to ask myself in the last few weeks, okay, I spend a lot of time reading about God's Word, but how often do I really let God's Word read me? You know, even if I have questions about how the Bible came to be, about who wrote certain words or, or why certain books were, were brought together. As much time as I spend thinking about who wrote certain words, how often do I really let the word of God be written on my heart? It's just I've, I've been around these words for a while. I can answer most trivia questions that you throw my way about the Bible. I can expose most of the flaws of people's arguments about the Bible. But, but when was the last time that I really let God's word expose the flaws in my spirit? Anybody relate to that? There's uh, one guy who I feel like relates. His name is Soren Kierkegaard. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. A philosopher, a theologian, a prolific writer. But what amazes me about Kierkegaard is, is here's a guy who probably never read a new word in the Bible. But he always committed himself to reading the word anew. He knew that he couldn't just stand at a distance. He couldn't look at God's word from afar and poke and prod at it. But he had to stand directly in its gaze. He had to look in the mirror. So he always tried to remind himself, when he opened God's word for self-reflection, he always tried to remind himself of a few things. He always tried to remind himself to look at his reflection in the mirror and not just the mirror. Because he knew that it's a lot easier sometimes to talk about God's word than it is to actually see yourself in its words, isn't it? But rather than trying to avoid the gaze of Scripture, Kierkegaard always tried to look directly at his reflection. He always tried, uh, as often as possible, to be alone with Scripture. Because he knew that it's a lot easier sometimes to read Scripture in a big crowd. Because then you can listen to chatter, you can listen to arguments, you can listen to debates. And you might even get like, someone to rationalize your actions and justify your behavior. But Kierkegaard knew that sometimes the most important thing that he could do is stand alone in front of Scripture. He always tried to remind himself to listen, you know, to, to be prepared to wait silently. Because you can't hear if you're always talking, right? And finally, he always told himself that he would do what he could understand. You know, in other words, don't, don't spend all your time just trying to argue about every minute detail in God's word when you could just do what you understand, to do what you already do know. It makes me think of uh, Coach Bookout, who was one of my middle school and high school football coaches, huge burly guy in the 60s who also taught sixth grade science, which is kind of funny, like that combination of big football coach and sixth graders, but I can remember sitting the first day of Coach Bookout's class with the rest of my classmates sitting at our desk with our notebooks out on our tables because 
Coach Bookout was going to tell us the rules for class. He said, I'm going to give you two rules, and these rules apply to class and to life. I'll be really honest. I don't remember the second rule at all. But I remember the first rule. Do right. Do right. Nothing complex about that rule, but there's a lot of really good truth and beauty in that, isn't there? Like instead of always arguing about what we don't understand, what we don't know, what if we just did what we do know? What if, what if we were a people that weren't known for always trying to get things right, but man, we were known for always trying to do right? I think that's kind of what Jesus was about, wasn't it? Especially in the Sermon on the Mount, man. Jesus says, who cares if you're within the boundaries? Who cares if you're within the law? I mean, where, where's your heart really at? And for that, we've got to look in the mirror. Because, I mean, we could, we could stand back and we could parse out the details and we could argue about the applications of these words. But I think one way for us to really read the Sermon on the Mount is to imagine. To imagine that, that Jesus is inviting his listeners, which includes you. He's inviting you to sit down for a talk. And, and maybe for the first time in a really long time, to really look in the mirror. That's what I want us to do. I want us to just to, to have a little talk. And I want us to imagine that Jesus is, is here with us. He's sitting here beside us. And he's holding up this mirror. Asking us if we're willing to look. You know, I, I wonder... What might Jesus have to say if we're just willing to look in the mirror? So let's see. Of course, the first thing that he starts with is anger. <laughs> he says, you know, I, I know you've always heard not to murder. You're doing a pretty good job of taking care of the people who do murder, putting them in prison. But in the meantime... What's, what's really happening with your anger? Because you know that's what this is all about, right? If your anger hasn't been reduced, then what's it all really for? If you hold on to your anger, then you're just as bad as the killers that you throw away in prison and forget about. Brent, what, what words have you mumbled in your head? or What scenarios have you played out in your imagination? Because you know that in Jesus' kingdom, thinking it, is the same as doing it. He says, don't just, don't just keep going to work and, and coming to church with this big, pained smile on your face, acting like everything's okay, avoiding the person that you're fighting with. And he sees you kind of start to, to bow up and get defensive. He says, no, 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 I, I see what you're saying. You, you want to say, oh, I'll forget about it when they forget about it, or, or I'll deal with it when they deal with it. He says, no, I, I want you to take the initiative. He wants, he wants me to take the first step. He wants me to take that first <laughs> embarrassing and terrifying and humiliating and incredibly 
freeing first step. And not pretend that it's just someone else's problem. Which is a little bit nerve-wracking because if I do that, I might find out that I was the one in the wrong. But Jesus says, have you really looked in the mirror? Maybe it's not anger for you. But Jesus says, you know, speaking of your imagination, some of the ways that you've been imagining the people around you hasn't been doing a whole lot for you know, their status as a person or as God's creation. And rather than calling it what it is, rather than calling it lust, we like to make up excuses. We like to you know, say, well, she shouldn't wear those clothes. Or he shouldn't be so funny. Or he shouldn't be hitting the weights. Jesus again says, no, no, no. It's not their problem. You take the initiative. Don't just objectify people based on the pleasure that they can offer you. Why don't you see them as a person? Because otherwise you have a pretty low view of the human body and you could just go ahead and cut off your hand and cut out your eye. Okay, so maybe it's not anger, maybe it's not lust, it's integrity. Because Jesus says, I, I know that you've all made some pretty important commitments of one kind or another in your life. But it just seems like our word doesn't really mean much anymore, does it? I'm like, whoa, Jesus, I don't, I don't know if we want to talk about this. <laughs> you know, because Jesus talks about divorce, but I know that pain of broken promises occur much more often than just when divorce papers are served. I know that there are those of you in this room that broken promises have caused exponential pain and loss in your life. And Jesus does too. And he still says, if you've been hurt by broken promises, don't let that give you an excuse to always look for the easy way out. If you've been hurt by broken promises, you can actually be part of bringing restoration to the situation. You can be part of creating a new community, a community that's not built on broken promises, but one that's built on integrity. A community where we don't have to give pinky promises anymore, we don't have to cross our hearts, we don't have to, you know, say something and have someone respond with, really? Jesus says we should be able to say yes, and people will know that we mean yes. We should be able to say no, and people will know we mean no. Uh, Randy Harris gives kind of an interesting scenario that I think helps us test our integrity. So if you want to, grab a sheet of paper, and and we can take a test together and see if this is a, a problem. Just write two words, yes and no. And then imagine that you're a college senior. Okay, you just have one semester left until graduation. After graduation, you're getting married. You've got this incredible job lined up. And the only thing between you and walking across the stage is a general ed credit. You know what it is? English 240 British literature. Yeah. Of course, you're the only senior in the class. Everyone else is freshmen. And because you're such an outstanding role model... You are barely slipping by the class. 
I mean, you're just barely passing, but you are passing. That's all that matters at this point anyways. And so you read countless pages of British literature. You do all the assignments necessary. And finally, it comes to the point this semester where the professor is preparing you for the final. And he tells your class that he wants you to read John Milton's Paradise Lost. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Well, you go back to your apartment that night and you pull Paradise Lost out of your bag. You realize how big it is. You open it and you start to see how dense it is. And you start counting up these and thous and thences. And you decide in that moment that thou shalt not read Paradise Lost. Close the book. Instead, get on the internet and start looking at literary commentaries, cliff notes, whatever you can find. And time comes for finals week. And the only thing between you and graduation now is that Brit Lit final. And you walk into class feeling pretty good about yourself. You know, you've done some pretty good research considering you didn't read the book. Cliff notes is a mighty handy tool. And you walk in and you sit down at your desk and, and there in front of you is a single sheet of paper. And written on that sheet of paper, just like the one you have in front of you right now, are two words, yes and no. And you look up at the board, and there written on the board is your final. One question. Did you read Paradise Lost? Yes or no? Pass or fail? Did you read Paradise Lost? So, what do you do? You know, I mean, if you circle yes, then you pass the class, you graduate, you get married, you go to that incredible job, and no one, I mean, no one really gets hurt. But if you circle no, you fail the class, you don't graduate, you probably lose that job, and to be perfectly honest, your fiancé will probably think that you are a loser and will start dating your roommate instead. So what do you do? You know, are, are you willing to hold on to your integrity even if it leads to your demise? That's the thing Jesus says. You know, sometimes when you, when you follow him, it's going to lead to your demise. You're not always going to end up on top. I, I think of, of revenge, for example. He says, I, I know it would be a lot easier whenever someone slaps you to slap them back or when someone sues you to sue them back or to only go so far when someone asks you to do something. But he says, I want you to do something different. I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to give more than is asked of you. I want you to go further than someone requires you. I want you to respond with kindness and irrational generosity and nonviolence. You're like, but Jesus, that honestly just sounds stupid. And a little bit scary, too. Because you do realize that if, if I just turn my cheek, there's still a good chance that I'll get hit again. If I don't sue someone, there's still a good chance that I'll get sued again. And Jesus holds his ground. He says, I, I know. But I still believe that Violence won't get you anywhere, that nonviolence is the best answer. 
And because Jesus knows that the world kind of works in funny ways sometimes, he knows that sometimes you'll go from being on the bottom to being on the top. You'll go from being a loser to being a winner. And you know what he says in that moment too? Turn the other cheek. Give more than is asked of you. Go further than is required of you. Kindness, irrational generosity, nonviolence. And then he kind of ends that section with an ellipsis, a, a dot, dot, dot. And he says, go ahead, your turn. Come up with some examples or imagine any sort of scenario you want to in your head, and I'll go ahead and tell you my answer. I'll always tell you to respond with nonviolence. And then Jesus sees the way that we're doing such a good job of, you know, loving our neighbor. And he says, there's just one problem with the way that you're loving your neighbor. You think that if you can name who your neighbors are, then you can also designate who your enemies are, right? He says, that's where the problem is. You don't have enemies. Because <laughs> what's the good in loving one group of people if you hate another group of people, you know? Because you're inevitably going to love the people who are just like you. Makes me think of a story of a group of people, a group of Christ followers who were at odds with another group of Christ followers in Montgomery, Alabama. This first group of people, we'll call them People Group A, were experiencing violence on public buses in Montgomery. But rather than responding to the violence that they were experiencing on public buses, rather than responding to that violence with more violence, they chose to respond by just not riding the buses with nonviolence, which sounds like they've been listening to Jesus. But then something crazy happened, and the courts overturned the law that allowed people group B to uh, abuse people group A on the buses and make them move to the back of the bus. Suddenly the courts overturned that law, and the people Group A went from being on bottom to being on top, from being losers to being winners. And that's when I wonder if Jesus was really proud. Because rather than responding in light of this newfound power, this newfound position with revenge and retaliation, which would have been so easy, they chose to maintain nonviolence. They actually even wrote a letter to each other, which... I found it to be really beautiful. A letter to remind each other, brought a copy here, to remind each other to not boast, to not brag, to remember that this is not a victory for our side alone, but for all of Montgomery and the South. So be friendly, be kind, and do exactly what Jesus said. If cursed, do not curse back. If pushed, do not push back. If struck, do not strike back. Be loving enough to absorb evil and understanding enough to turn an enemy into a friend. Wow. You know, when, I, when I first read that letter, I was almost brought to tears <laughs> just realizing that this group of people didn't care about Revenge or retaliation, whether they were on bottom or on top. They didn't care about holding on to grudges. They didn't care about who might be their enemy because they were so worried about loving their neighbor. 
They all sound just a lot like Jesus. I think maybe what almost brought me to tears was that it looks a lot like Jesus. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. You know, as much talk as we've had about looking in mirrors and seeing your reflection, you do know that there, there will come a day where you'll look in the mirror and you won't see your reflection. There will come a day, one day, I'll look in the mirror and I won't see my reflection. The one day, if I continually look at myself in the mirror, one day, I will be so transformed, I will be so renewed that one day I'll look in the mirror and I won't see Brent Hall staring back at me. One day I'll, I'll look in the mirror and you know who I'll see? One day I'll see the face of Christ. I'll see the face that doesn't hold grudges. I'll see the face that doesn't get angry, that isn't deceitful. I'll see a face that's full of compassion and mercy and forgiveness and love. And one day you will too. That's the goal. One day we'll look in the mirror and we won't see ourselves staring back at us. We'll see the face of Christ. Until that day, are you willing to look in the mirror? I pray that we are. Let's stand and sing. I will never be the same again. I can never return. I close the door.